trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I want you to know this is a safe space where wrong thinkers can gather. Now, the irony is wrong thinkers really don't need a safe space. <laughs> In fact, that's what makes them wrong thinkers is they're, they're not just looking to hear things that are soft on their ears. They're looking for truth. And uh, to that end, I've brought my friend uh, Eric Peters back for a visit. Hi, Eric. Hey, Brian. Aren't you glad you voted for the president of Kiev back in 2020? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's... <laughs> You know, I I, I, th- I was telling you off the air that the best headline I've seen today came from the Babylon Bee, and it was a picture of Hunter Biden on the phone, and, and the headline, Hunter Biden calls father and says, hey, Dad, as long as you're in Kiev, do you mind picking up my paycheck? Oh, my God. And, and, you know, that's hilarious, but something that's not funny, and I haven't had time yet to verify this, but I, I understand that in Munich yesterday, some administration of the regime declared by, or not Biden, uh, Putin guilty of crimes against humanity. Formally, and they threatened that they're going to pursue him with the implication being, you know, they're going to back this guy into a corner and give him no choice. Like even if he wanted to come to some kind of agreement with the Kievian leadership, that that's not enough because they're going to hound him to some dock somewhere and indict and prosecute him for supposed crimes against humanity. Well, a good friend shared with me this morning uh, this headline. I thought this was kind of interesting. Let's see. What does it say? Oh, uh, Russia suspends only remaining major nuclear treaty with U.S. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it gets serious. Uh, and uh, I think as funny as all the memes are, this is something that could end up being extremely unfunny in the very near future. You know, I, I have to ask your your take on, you know, the Seymour Hersh's revel- revelations about the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Mainstream media in the U.S. really hasn't talked much about that. If they have, it's just been, well, some blogger, Cy Hersh, whoever some he blogger. is, you know, yeah. you know has, has said this. But um, I understand that China actually has come right out and said, we want answers. Was the We want a formal inquiry. Was the U.S. involved in the destruction of that pipeline? That makes me curious if, if maybe the U.S. won't find itself backed into a corner uh, by, by dint of, uh, you know, that's exactly what they were threatening to do. Well, my first thought is the dismissiveness of, once again, the, you know, the organs, the, the amen chorus for the regime. Just as they dismissed the uh, Project Veritas video of the high-up Pfizer guy, uh, telling some truths about the so-called vaccines. You know, you don't see that much on CBS, NBC, uh, and MSNBC, and you don't see coverage of this other thing either because, you know, they want to keep the sheeple nice and uh, nice and huddled together and, and comforted in the, uh, the shepherd's narrative. And uh, it's, it's just a measure of the disinformation that we are subjected to by these organs. And because people are so unaware of reality at this point and what's going on, uh, these very dangerous trends are propagating and uh, getting worse and worse all the time. It's as if we're being driven toward the edge of a cliff, and there's almost no way to avoid us jumping over at this point. Yeah, I feel like we're, we're being taken there against our will. And I wanted to get your take, too, on you know the the rail, uh, the train derailment in Ohio, the, the toxic cloud of smoke and everything. Now, I know there are some people out there sensationalizing this, but on the whole— 
that looks like a pretty nasty ecological disaster. And I'd, I'd just like to get your take. Are, are, are we getting any factual information or is, is this just hyperbole at this point? Well, I think the take-home point, the relevant point here is that no matter how severe it actually is, it is a severe event. And I think it's interesting to observe the indifference of the, uh, the Biden regime and the regulatory apparatus with regard to this, which actually does potentially threaten the health of a lot of people directly with chemicals that are really dangerous, as opposed to the maniacal zeal with which they will go after somebody for building a car that emits 0.0 something percent more of a given harmless gas. You know, right. it just shows that the real agenda is not health. It's not air quality. Uh, those are all pretexts and excuses for the broader agenda, which is to use those pretexts uh, as the excuse to, uh, to to further control and serve us. No, I, I'm with you. I think it does come down to control. But then again, it looks the more I look around, it seems like control is is at the it's the basis for almost every single policy that we see being enacted. I mean the the so-called brace rule that the ATF put out um, yeah. how about how about we make potential criminals out of millions of peaceful gun owners um, just with a you know stroke of a pen here. Well, that makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, you know, at one time regulation in the old colonial sense meant to make regular and there was a case to be made. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it wasn't entirely unreasonable you know, into having standards and so on, so that there was some order rather than chaos in commerce, for example. But now uh, it is completely off the reservation, and its sole purpose seems to be to completely eliminate any freedom of choice. Uh, And we're not talking about things that involve, oh, well, if, if we didn't regulate this, people would get hurt. Nonsense. It's got nothing to do with that. It's regulation for regulation's sense. Uh, sake. And as Von Mises and other economic uh, high muckety-mucks have pointed out, that's what happens when you empower a regulatory apparatus. The, the objective of the regulatory apparatus is not to, to solve a problem. It's to create new problems to justify the next slew of regulations ad infinitum. Here, here, And I actually saw one post on Twitter that, that kind of made me stop and think, I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, the as to the situation in Ohio, for instance, what it said was, well, one of the ways that you assert control is uh, you basically turn an area into a giant uh, EPA, you know, controlled disaster. And then mm-hmm. the EPA has absolute authority to, to go in there and yep. move people around, deprive them of their property. You know, you have to do this. Why? Well, because this is an ecological disaster. But it, but it's one that uh, seems to have been almost deliberately created. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, meanwhile... Uh, You've got the president of the United States, allegedly, uh, off in Ukraine, uh, lecturing Americans about how important it is to stand up for freedom and democracy everywhere except here. Right. Well, and, and, you know, not to not to start any fights with anybody, but um, if if people have watched how the Ukrainian government has reacted and the, the liberties and the freedoms it has taken from its own people, you know, there's nothing there's nothing going on there that's about standing up for freedom. You know, it's right. It's they're they're at least as authoritarian and repressive as the regime that uh, that invaded them, or the regime that keeps sending them weapons and you know urging them to fight to the last Ukrainian. Yeah, it's it's a very curious and very alarming thing, and I don't believe we've even begun to plumb the depths of the true story. Uh, hopefully, we will without turning the world into a smoldering cinder. So I also wanted to get your take on on this. I understand that uh, thousands, tens of thousands of hours of video footage from the U.S. Capitol 
has been released. Uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, apparently handed it over to Tucker Carlson, of all people. Yeah, I saw that. Is that a good thing? I mean, uh, is it good to have this out there? Should it have come through a mainstream media? I'm not trying to throw Carlson under the bus here, but um, why give it to a journalist first rather than, you know, a, a private party? I don't know, maybe because we really don't have an operative press anymore. And Tucker is one of the few who doesn't fall into that category. He might actually publicize it. And to the extent that we'd all like to know the truth, I think it would be helpful to actually be able to see with our own eyes what actually happened. You know, this narrative has been created that it was a quote unquote insurrection, uh, by which is meant that violent people were trying to overthrow the government, which is utter nonsense. Most of the people were there simply to show their support for Trump and to express uh, their disapproval with the way the elections were handled and with Biden. That, you know, as, a, as American as apple pie, as the saying goes, and yeah, it got out of hand and some people did things they shouldn't have, but they weren't armed and it wasn't an attempt to overthrow the government. So I think if there's video that confirms that and shows that and it gets a, a wide airing, I think that will be probably a positive thing. I'll tell you, one of the people who I have been following very closely now for, for well over the last year and a half is uh, Julie Kelly, who writes for American uh, greatness.com. Um, she has really done a great job. She's on Twitter. In fact, she actually posted a nice time-lapse video. And, and it's very clear that, uh, yes, there were people in the crowd that started to get rowdy, but you also see Capitol Police um, aggressively going out and, and gassing and beating people who yeah. really who weren't even misbehaving. Kind of an interesting yeah. thing. Contra, contra to what happened back in 2020 when you had actually violent so-called peaceful protesters burning things down, smashing cop cars, and the cops would just stand there and let them do it. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a very curious blind spot when it comes to left-wing violence versus, you know, this, uh, this putative right-wing violence. And one is treated as a violent insurrection. The other one is just, oh, well, maybe we should try to understand their rage, if I could paraphrase a certain uh, California congresswoman. Yeah, there's a common thread running through that, and I think it's, it's difficult for people who aren't leftists to understand it because we try to assume the best of other people and that they're motivated uh, genuinely, that, that they're not deceptive people. But the, the left is fundamentally deceptive, and so it is not opposed to violence per se. What it's opposed to is violence uh, that is in opposition to the left, even including violent language. Uh, it is perfectly fine to be violent in support of leftism, and they will never criticize it. They'll even defend it. Um, but when we even voice a criticism of the left, it drives the left into violence. You know, yep. and this is a hard thing psychologically for normal people to grapple with. And this is part of the etiology, the sickness of the left. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take you right to Eric's website. All right, Eric, as a writer, I, I have to get your opinion on this. I was reading an article, uh, this is out of the UK, where the Daily Mail is reporting that uh, apparently there is a government-led prevent counterterrorism program, and one of the things that they have really been taking aim at lately are works of literature, and we're talking literature from Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, Tennyson, uh, Orwell, Huxley, Kipling, and Edmund Burke. They're taking a close look at these saying, well, people who read these 
are possibly being encouraged in their far-right sympathies. And in fact, they go so far as to say these are key texts for white supremacists. I'd like to get your of reaction. They are. Well, because they're, they're the product of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and uh, the return of the respect for the individual upon which the entirety of Western civilization is based. And for the left, that means white supremacy uh, and hierarchy from their point of view. And so naturally, they're going to try to uh, stamp out those things and to change them. And ironically, you know, it's, it, it's just astonishing that what or- Orwell wrote about in 1984, which was specifically the rewriting of the past to suit the present for political purposes, is exactly what they're going to do. My understanding is that there is uh, something afoot to change 1984, the novel, into something written from the female point of view. And probably the entirety of the text will be altered to suit as well. So I'm not surprised by any of this. I, I grew up uh, reading and having books read to me uh, by uh, Roald Dahl, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mm-hmm. or, you know, all, yep. all of these uh, these classics. And, and look, I understand Roald Dahl also had some, uh, I don't know how to put this, they were kind of edgy works, but uh, most of his children's books, you know, The Big Friendly Giant and so forth, very, very down to earth. Those are being rewritten and, and, of course, being edited to be more inclusive, more sensitive and that kind of thing. And I have to ask, where does that kind of thing stop or does it? Well, it doesn't. You know, we're, we are, Marjorie Taylor Greene the other day talked openly uh, about a national uh, separation or divorce. I can't remember the exact language that she, that she used. But I do believe it's inevitable because these people will not give. Uh, They will not budge. They will not stop until they have utterly rewritten everything in the past to suit their present and the future that they want to lead us down. Uh, Everything is political for them, absolutely everything. That's why this movement to get rid of statues, but not all statues, just the statues that they don't like that represent uh, what they called in, uh, I think it was in Mao's China, you know, old think, old people, old ways. That was what the Red Guard went after and bashed in people's skulls for, you know, for all of the old ways. And that's fundamentally what we're talking about here. Uh, and again, I think it's important to just keep in mind these people are not motivated by any kind of humanistic, let's all get along kind of sentiment. When they speak of diversity, they're talking about homogeneity. Their diversity is extraordinarily superficial. It's fine to have uh, a black guy here and a white guy there and a maybe a white guy and an Asian person there. Uh, but as long as they all think exactly the same way with a bayonet shoved in their back, that's the kind of diversity that the left wants. No, it's it, it makes me very grateful that uh, among the few things that I do choose to hoard, books are one of them. And I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful to have some of these, uh, you know, pre-approved, uh, uh, well, I guess they're, they're, they're the wrong think version of these books, because if they're going to start rewriting everything, um, I'd like to have a hard copy so I can show people, show my grandkids or their kids, this is how it used to be. This is when we were free to you know, think for ourselves. You make a really important point, and I, and I do the same. My girlfriend and I have talked about this, about the importance of getting hard copies, uh, physical, tangible, tangible copies of these great works. And frankly, also, I think you probably should grab a couple Bibles, too, if you're religious, because they're going to change that as well. And what we'll find ourselves in is the same kind of position that medieval monks who tried to preserve, you know, these these, these heretical works and, and kept them locked away somewhere uh, as general ignorance, illiteracy and violence uh, came to characterize the Dark Ages. That's where we're headed right now. And the only way we're ever going to uh, resuscitate civilization is by keeping the spark of those works alive somewhere. Here, here, and I'm I'm determined. I will be a wrong thinker to the very end, but uh, it's it's helpful to have books so that uh, the next generation of wrong thinkers can likewise be trained up. Absolutely.
Let's talk about some cars. You've been reviewing some pretty yep. fun ones lately. I noticed uh, recently you had posted uh, something about the 2023 Nissan Z. It's been a while since I drove yep. a Z car, but uh, talk to me about the Z car. What is the status of, of the Nissan Z car these days? Well, it's kind of paradoxical. Uh, you, if you're a car person, might remember the original 240Z, which uh, Datsun, which was what Nissan was back then, um, brought to the United States in 1969. And it was a very light sports car with an inline six-cylinder engine. And uh, it was very popular. It sold really well. Uh, as the years went along, it got heavier and heavier and heavier. And finally, it went out of production. I think it was the 300ZX when it had gotten twin turbos. And it was very expensive. Then they brought it back in a more distilled form, uh, the, the 350Z and then the 370Z. And then those didn't do too well. And now they brought it back as just the Z. But it is, while it's still a, a pretty pure sports car, it's an astonishingly heavy car. If you can imagine a car that's really not much bigger than a Miata uh, that has a curb weight of about 3,500 pounds. Wow. Now, they overcome that with a very powerful turbocharged V6 engine. So it's quite quick, but it's nothing like the original. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's literally 1,000 pounds heavier than the original. And the only reason it's as heavy as it is is because the only way that Nissan can continue to build a car like that in our time uh, is by adding all the structure to it to help comply with all of the government regulations that are required before anybody can sell a car these days. Wow. It's probably been mm, close to 30 years since I last drove a Nissan Z car. It was a 300, I think, mm -hmm. ZX. But yep. I remember not only did that thing have an amazing manual transmission, but it had some freaking serious get up and go. Yes. Now, uh, one of the really nice things about the revived Z, uh, and you know, this is another measure of our times, uh, is that it does come standard with a manual transmission in all trims. And that is something that's become un kind of unusual today, even in the sports car segment, where uh, a lot of them now are automatic only, or if you want the manual, it's only available in one of the trims, which means you're restricted in terms of what equipment, other equipment and options might be available to you. So, you know, I give a lot of kudos to Nissan for offering it that way and, and trying to keep that flame alive. Okay, let's let's shift for a moment here and talk about a good old American sports car, and that being the Corvette. Mm -hmm. um, I loved your, your write-up on what the Corvette was and should be again. Mm -hmm. Walk us through that. Yeah, well, you know, you've probably heard the Corvette referred to as America's sports car, and that has a number of meanings. One of them was that Americans could generally afford it. You know, it was more expensive than, say, a Camaro or a Nova, but not startlingly so. To give you some sense of it, and I pointed this out in the article, in 1969, you could buy a base Corvette Roadster for about $4,700. Now, in today's money, that works out to about $38,000. You know, that's pricey, but it's not exotic car pricey. Right. Well, the current Corvette uh, is something like, I think, $64,000. I can't remember the exact figure. And that puts it in the exotic car class. It, it puts it out of the reach of most Americans. And that fact is reflected in the sales volume. In 69, um, GM sold something like 38,000 Corvettes. Last year, uh, they sold about 34. Now, that sounds like it's a rough parody kind of a situation. But in 1969, there were only 200 million Americans. Today, there are 330. So proportionately, uh, GM is selling far fewer Corvettes today than it did back then. And the obvious reason why is because the thing costs almost twice as much as it did back then. I know I was watching some footage uh, from Nürburgring, and uh, it seemed like a disproportionate number of Corvettes were spinning out and crashing. Maybe that was just the inexperience of the drivers, but there were a lot of crashes that seemed to involve Corvettes. 
Well, you know, part of it is the capability of these cars, not just Corvette, but all the cars in that class, they are now so high. They are so high relative to the skill of the typical driver. You know, unless you're literally actively a, uh, a race car driver or operating at that level, which is not most people. I include myself in that number. Uh, this is a car that can get away from you very quickly despite all the electronic stability aids and all the other things that it has in terms of safety nets. It is an incredibly powerful car, and in a way, it's kind of frustrating because if you attempt to use the capability that it has, it's very easy to get in trouble. Now, a 69 Corvette only had 300 horsepower, had a four-speed transmission, had 15-inch wheels. It wasn't nearly as quick, not nearly as fast, not nearly as capable, but it was a very fun car to drive. It was really enjoyable. You could wind out that V8 almost to the you know the nth degree of its capability and not risk dying by doing it. Lion Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to my sponsors, including TMCP Nation. That's my friend John Harvey and the Modern Conservative Podcast, which he hosts. I want to direct you to his website, and there's a link in my sponsor uh, links that will take you directly to the TMCP Nation. It's just lots of cool swag. I don't know any other way to tell you. It's really cool stuff. He'll give you a nice uh, bonus gift if, as, as one of my listeners, you put in the, the code BHYDE, that's H-Y-D-E. Also want to thank Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, as you can tell from my conversation with, with Eric Peters, things are getting pretty crazy. In fact, I, I don't know if, if you have the same sense, but I, I'm hearing from more and more people that you know, there's a sense that, you know, the sides are really becoming clearly drawn. Things seem to be accelerating there. I don't know. It feels like there is a collision of some sorts that's coming. And at the, at the very least, even if there isn't, you know, some kind of head on collision, it just feels like we are headed for much more difficult times than what we have lived through thus far. Now, I don't say that with a sense of glee. I'm not a masochist. I, I don't like discomfort. I don't like pain. I don't like struggle. But I also have seen just enough of human history through my studies that uh, I realize that's more often than not the norm. Those periods of peace and prosperity and, heaven forbid, freedom, those are the exceptions rather than the rule. And so there were a couple of thoughts that, that had crossed my mind today. And, and I'm just going to drop these as, as just food for thought. A good friend was, was telling me something about how he felt like he's waiting for something. Like his time to shine will be in a much darker future time or in a darker future time when things will be much harder. Now, he doesn't say that like he's, yeah, it's going to be so great. It's more like, I'm not sure I really even understand what that means, but that's, that's the sense I have is I've been prepared and I'm being prepared for a time where I'm going to have to step forward when things are going to be a lot more difficult than they are right now. And I got to tell you, he's not alone in that. I sense it too. I talk to other people who have sensed this as well. And and I'm not telling you this to discourage you, okay? So it's not like, yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, pretty much we're doomed and we should all just <laughs> throw our hands in the air and give up. What this suggests to me is that you must devise a plan. You've got to do something. There's no better way to do it. If you don't want a plan for yourself, well, the system has got your life planned out. And in fact, it's making plans for you right now. 
because it wants you subjugated, it wants you to suffer. But if you are making plans, other plans, to become an unplayable piece on that chessboard, I'm not saying you're not going to suffer, but I'm saying at least you'll get to call more of your own shots. <laughs> you, may, you may get to choose the tune to which you'll suffer. No, you'll, you'll have a chance, I think, to, to actually make the difference you were born to make. And I can't think of a few things that would, I, I can't think of anything, actually, that would be more satisfying. When we eventually reach the end of our lives, you know, we're going to look back and, okay, well, what exactly have I accomplished? And I got to tell you, all the material stuff that's fun right now, the big house, the fancy cars, you know, the nice clothes, the trips and everything, that's cool. Nothing wrong with it. But it isn't going to matter as much as being able to answer the question, did I have impact? Did I leave a mark on the world that left it in some way better than I found it? I know that's deep. That's like, what are you doing, writing your own eulogy or something kind of deep. But if you want to make a difference, you've got to be of that mindset. You cannot give in to all the counsels of despair. Oh, it's hopeless. You know, we're all all doomed. Just remember, during humanity's darkest times, there have always been great souls who came forward as great souls and as, as sources of light to point the direction to a better way forward. I'm telling you this because I believe you are one of those people. I think I'm one of those people, and I don't say that to brag. It's, it doesn't mean, therefore, things are going to get easy and, you know, you're going to be universally adored. Nope, probably the opposite. But I believe there's purpose in it. And I believe that purpose actually has to do with God put his finger on you and said, I know I can trust you to get the job done. So, with that in mind, I want to share with you a thought here from Paul, Paul Rosenberg. Keeping civilization alive. You know, it's no exaggeration that those of us who love truth and who love freedom, we have a lot of heavy lifting ahead of us. And the task that has fallen to us is keeping civilization alive. Paul Rosenberg says a lot of us grew up believing that democracy would deliver the best of all possible worlds. But he says that pleasant promise has become very obviously false. Rulership is not equipped to supply honest and humane living. What they are equipped to supply is ever more rulership, in other words, enforcement. And there's no one to cultivate civilization but us. So we must do this as briefly as possible. He says, I'll describe our situation, then move on to what we must do next. Now, again, I love his ability to take complex subjects and distill them down to the essence of what's at stake here. Paul says, as I noted recently, there are two primary models for attaining a civilized, humane, high-trust way of life. Number one, cultivate civilization within people. Number two, enforce civilization upon people. Now, in the best of the old days, governments contented themselves with dealing with exterior threats, leaving any number of religions and philosophies free to cultivate civilization within the populace. But he says, since the 1970s, however, we have seen a hostile takeover of morality, of the enforcement of moral norms by the state, via the regulation or criminalization of everything. Under this model, the state must enforce proper speech and sexual procedures. It must punish and repress the original sin of racism. It must enforce green to prevent an apocalypse. It must eliminate threat after threat, ultimately bringing us to a promised land. Ever more enforcement is rulership's path to paradise. And he says many people are pleased to believe such fantasies coming as they do with no observable cost. So that's where we are. 
So what do we do? Well, he says, what we need to do is act on our own will and initiative. The good news is that we're already doing that. And as it turns out, we're really good at it. The first job is to teach the next generation what's good and what's right. The enforcement complex will not do this. They'll portray themselves as the ultimate standard of rightness. So we need to teach the golden rule, tolerance, kindness, kindness rather, uh, cooperation, integrity, and so on. Now, Paul Rosenberg says the importance of this is extreme. I'm a bit more optimistic than historian Will Durant, but he had a point when he wrote this. Quote, civilization is not inherited. It has to be learned and earned by each generation anew. If the transmission should be interrupted for one century, civilization would die and we should be savages again. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, but again, it happens that while we're quite good at such things, provided that we undertake them directly, rather than handing them off to others in the name of convenience or in the name of specialization. There are no specialists who will teach basic decency to our children better than we can. He says the ultimate training ground, of course, is the family. But again, that's only useful if we do the work. The more honest, engaged, and healthy our families, the more honest, engaged, and healthy will be the next generation. Civilization is also taught during the process of homeschooling, simultaneously keeping kids from the toxic dogmas being pumped through government schools in the U.S. where the war on homeschooling remains at a fairly low level. 11.1% of American children are now said to be homeschooled. So says the U.S. Census. That's a shocking number, and if it's correct, it will bear noticeable fruit in not too many years. He says homeschool parents, whatever their shortfalls, are nearly always serious people, working hard to give their children the best education they can, including moral education. And if 11.1% of parents can do it, many more can as well. In other places, particularly in Europe, homeschooling is barbarically persecuted. So those of us in less bad places should consider ways to help our oppressed brethren. Past all of this, he says, we have Bitcoin. This is money with civilization encoded within it. Bitcoin allows for no enforcer or overseer, has no handle for an overlord to grab. It is super tolerant in that censorship is very, very difficult, and no one can be cut off because of their religion or anything else. More than that, Bitcoin has drawn to itself many of the more serious and morally-minded people. So he says what we need to do with Bitcoin is use it uh, profligately. Bitcoin's lightning overlay and dozens of lightning-able wallets are available, accommodates any number of small purchases for trivial fees. He says we need to keep this thing going. It's freedom money and thus morality money. Now, gold and silver could be used similarly, he says, but that's opposed in itself hopefully soon. So... We have plenty to do. And he says, I haven't even mentioned things like talking to your neighbors, your coworkers, people you ride the bus with, and so on. We're on our own now, as perhaps we've always been. He says, we need to do this. Pick a spot and start. So if you've been wondering or at least pondering, well, what exactly is it that you're suggesting I ought to be working on or that I ought to be undertaking? That's, that's what Paul's talking about here. How do you preserve? How do you pass on civilization? You know you have a circle of influence. There are people in your life. And I don't care how big or small that circle is. Your influence within that circle is absolutely real. So, devise a plan. Don't let the system plan things out for you. And help yourself and others become that unplayable chess piece on the board. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, got some fun stuff to share in this final segment today. Ah, You know, the last couple of times I've moved, of course, I've had the opportunity to get rid of a lot of stuff, and I needed to. I'm not quite a hoarder, but I I tend to hang on to things, you know, just because, hey, this might be useful someday. And then, you know, typically I throw it out about two weeks before I actually need it. But books are the one thing that I have found very, very difficult to get rid of. And as I have, my last two moves have been really tough because books are heavy. They're, They're a pain in the butt. They take up a lot of space. But I'm starting to be very grateful that I have a hard time turning loose of them. One of the reasons why is because right now we're starting to see a trend where basically pre-thought crime books, those that were published some time ago, are now being revised and rewritten. So the people who are screaming about censorship, well, we don't want want people restricting children's access to pornography in, in libraries, are the very same people who are trying to rewrite various books because, well, that was insensitive the way that it said something. What a misplaced sense of priorities. But that's the reality. And I actually have a wonderful article here. Uh, this is from Zero Hedge, British taxpayer-funded anti-extremist study. Whew, there's a mouthful. Finds Shakespeare, Orwell, Tolkien, key texts for white supremacists. Ha! Ah, you didn't know that, did you? If you've read any of these, well, you're probably an extremist of some sort. Here's what the article says. It says, several of the UK's most respected TV shows, movies, and works of literature have been included in a list of works that could potentially encourage far-right sympathies. Let me translate that for you. They could actually reinforce the idea that you were born to be free, not under some bureaucrat's thumb or under the thumb of some moral busybody. That's your far-right sympathies on display. This was compiled by the taxpayer-funded and government-led Prevent Counterterrorism Program in Britain. As the Daily Mail reports, works by some of the world's greatest writers were included as examples of warning signs of potential extremism. Listen to this list of of, uh, extremist authors that, uh, you know, might be contributing to your extremism. Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton... Well, of course, Milton defended free speech. Why wouldn't he, right? Tennyson, Orwell, Huxley, Kipling. Okay, Kipling, well, no, I don't think, Kipling was just the product of another time. Edmund Burke as well. Now, the flagship prevent scheme, recently the subject of a scathing audit, singled out comedies, Yes, Mister, and The Thick of It, the 1955 epic war film, The Dam Busters, and even the complete works of William Shakespeare as possible red flags of extremism. Prevent is a key part of the UK's counterterrorism strategy as a means to safeguard against what they call vulnerable people being drawn into criminal behavior. So in practical terms, it places public bodies, including schools and the police, under a legal duty to identify people who may turn to extremism and intervene in their lives before it's too late. Yeah, there's nothing Orwellian about that. If the local panels find someone who's at risk of becoming a terrorist, the prevent teams use specialist mentors or other support programs to turn around their lives. It said the works of fiction were key texts for white nationalists slash supremacists. 
Right-leaning writer Douglas Murray obtained the full list and discovered one of his books had been given a red flag by Prevent. He wrote in The Spectator, A number of books are singled out, the possession or reading of which could point to severe wrong think and therefore potential radicalization. It seems RICU, that's the Prevent Research Information and Communications Unit, is so far off track that it believes that books identifying the problem that it was itself set up to tackle are in fact a part of the problem. He's got a point. House of Cards screenwriter Andrew Davies said, It almost seems like a joke. House of Cards was almost a satirical view, was actually a satirical view of right-wing politics. The list includes more or less the entire classical canon of literature and some of the very best British television programs ever made. The list has emerged following a major review criticized prevent scheme, criticizing the prevent scheme by William Shawcross. His report published earlier this month criticized the 49 million pound a year scheme prevent scheme saying it applied a double standard to Islamist and far-right threats, prioritizing the latter. The BBC reports Mr. Shawcross said he had been consistently unable to determine how many community organizations receiving a slice of the Prevent budget were having any impact. He said, funding too often goes toward generic products, dealing with community cohesion and hate crime, and few community organizations could be seen publicly to contest extremist discourse. Some have promoted extremist narratives, including statements that appear sympathetic to the Taliban. Now, as the Mail reports, a Home Office spokesman said, The Home Secretary made clear the prevent, that Prevent will now ensure it focuses on the key threat of Islamist terrorism, as well as remaining vigilant on emerging threats. We've accepted all 34 recommendations from the Shawcross Review and are committed to protecting our country from the threat posed by terrorism. Home Secretary Suella Braverman told members of Parliament that Prevent needs major major reform. Prevent has shown cultural timidity and an institutional hesitancy to tackle, excuse me, Islamism for the fear for fear of the charge of Islamophobia. Prevent's focus must be solely on security, not political correctness. Now, I think even Islamophobia can be a thing. I think that you can take that too far. Only from the standpoint, I believe that the vast majority of the world's Muslims are actually very good, decent people who get unfairly tarred with with the radicals. But I'm much more concerned with the idea that classics of Western literature, especially those that warn against authoritarianism or totalitarianism, those are considered, well, they're, they're extremist works and they may lead people deeper into extremism and, yes, white supremacy. I mean, for crying out loud, these works will teach you about human nature. And you know what you can learn about human nature? Number one, it has not changed in thousands of years of human history. Human nature is still the same. And one of the most tried and true aspects of human nature is that you give a man a little bit of power Almost immediately, he will begin to seek more and more. That's human nature. That's why we have to have what are called auxiliary precautions. The Constitution is full of them that limit the potentiality for mischief or for people to exercise dominion and especially unrighteous or illegitimate dominion over their fellow human beings. So, yeah, I can see where the powers that be would be very concerned about books, writers, philosophers that actually warn about this particular aspect of human nature. It's warning about them, 
No wonder they want to try to tar and feather it. Well, you know, that's just what white supremacists think. It's it's the whole correlation causation thing and and the uh, well we have to associate this with if there's if there's a more weaselly phrase out there than associated with I don't know what it is but if you really want to get down to it do you realize that every serial killer in history is associated with drinking water so if you know someone who drinks water just know they're they're engaged in behavior that's associated with every known serial killer in history they drank water as well oh and they breathed oxygen so If you're breathing oxygen, well, all I'm saying is, you know, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of rhetorical trickery. And it's it's just one more reason why you have to be firm on owning your own worldview. You cannot be at the mercy of someone else to tell you, okay, this is okay for you to believe, and this is what you should think about this. By the way, there's another article I'm going to include. I wish I had more time to delve into this, but it's an article about tribalism. And if there's one takeaway about tribalism that I would like to ask you to consider, it's that tribes spend their time fighting and warring with other tribes. Barry Brownstein has a marvelous essay that explores the thin line between tribalism and human flourishing. He's got some wonderful historical examples All I'm saying is tribalism is built on that whole group identity construct. That's a form of collectivism because it assigns a person's worth based on what group are you a part of or what group aren't you a part of. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? But that's what a lot of people are pulled into right now. Got to look at the individual. Is this a decent person based on their behavior Do they act in decent ways or are they indecent? Again, based on their behavior. That's really the only human distinction that matters. I think you'll find a tremendous amount of food for thought in Barry Brownstein's essay. Again, it's the thin line between tribalism and human flourishing. I've got a link in today's show notes, which you can examine for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers, you know, we should see it coming. You know, there's the clamp down on wrong think. The uh, making sure that you're not reading unapproved sources or encountering misinformation, which these days misinformation, you can almost always substitute the word truths, inconvenient truths that uh, the people in power would rather you didn't consider. But again, thanks for being part of this audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show.